Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We are starting this recording earlier than usual, 6.28 p.m. on a not-so-bad Monday evening in California, Northern California. Still have a fair amount of smoke and whatnot from the fires. Not as bad as it was last week or even the week before. So instead of it just being pure white haze, uh, we can actually see a tiny bit of sunlight as the sun starts to go down. So, huh, well, <laughs> doubleheader in Gateway Worldwide Technology Raceway. Um, we, no joke, I think set a new record for your questions strictly for the listener Q and a this week. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who's going to be our guest. I think, I mean, I have the request in just going to hear back Tuesday morning on that. And depending on how that goes, uh, I got a couple other alternates I'll reach out to, but just for your listener Q and a alone, we most certainly have two episodes I, I mean, it could be more. Last two weeks, we have split your questions into two parts just to reduce the length of the show, and I failed to get to the second parts and record those, whether, well, for a variety of reasons. I suck. You know that. This is my unpolished turd of a show. For those of you who are listening for the first time, I refer to this as my unpolished turd of a show because it's just racked full of mistakes and malapropisms and idiocy. It's a true reflection of who I am. So not getting to things as well would fall under the category there of being an unpolished turd. So I'm truly, truly going to try and get to the part two of your questions because there's just way, way more than usual. But hey, that's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. Mention a couple of quick items before we get rolling. Been doing these post-race brain dumps a new thing i've been doing this year on racer.com didn't get to do one after the indy 500 just too much going on but just filed one for the double header uh, from good old madison illinois and one of the notes was about santino ferrucci and his number 18 dale coin racing with vassar sullivan honda in two straight days of significant mistakes on pit lane not by him, but by his crew that led to losing a worrisome number of positions. Also had that happen. I can't honestly remember the exact number from last year, but it felt like four or five times last year as well. I heard this morning that his crew chief was let go, which is really sad. Not unexpected, but sad. Just uh, Roy is a truly exemplary human being so uh heard that this morning and yeah like i said not unexpected you know if a team loses multiple games and or there's been a what some sort of worrying trend it's not uncommon for the head coach or the whomever to let get, get let go in this case since it's in the domain of being over the wall and pit stops not uncommon for the crew chief to be the one that pays the price for it so hate to see it happen hate it for the team 
and hate it for Roy. And yeah, boy, not uh, not the happiest happiest of things. You know, I said I had a couple things to get to, and I I'm sure I did, and they've fallen out of my brain very quickly. There's one more that jumps out. Got a final total on all of the donations that came in for the Racing for Cancer uh, little social media fundraiser that we did. And I know many, many, many of you were very, very kind participants in that. Got 99 of about 160-ish donation gift random little mailer packets out the door today. So while my wife was in physical therapy, uh, dropped her off, got her inside and settled, and then drove over to the post office. And, yeah, the really nine, nice gentleman by the name of Edwin spent about an hour uh, processing those 99 envelopes to mail. And uh, you talk about uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Fully expected the mailers to, you know, be about a buck a piece or whatever. Uh, they're six by nine envelopes, flat for the most part. Uh, <laughs> no, no. And I mean, I've spent hours upon hours putting envelopes together and this and that and labels and uh, assembling the stickers and the buttons and, you know. Truly, a lot of time was invested in creating just the first 99, and I still have, you know, 60-ish more to go. I mention that not because I'm trying to make my sound self, sound, self, sound, whatever. I'm saying that because reversing the process or doing it over again, it just really is not on the cards. What I assembled to mail, uh, it just had to go out. And so thinking, eh, you know, again... A uh, 50 cent stamp, maybe two stamps for some of them that have a couple more things in them or might be a little heavier, whatever. Wasn't going to be a big expense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's just say I think um, whatever budget deficit the U.S. Postal Service is having, well, they spotted an idiot coming through the door today and said, well, he's going to help fix that. So, yeah. Uh, the majority of them were uh, $4.20 a piece. And a couple going to Canada were more than $12 a piece. So, yeah, uh, boy, um, let's just say it's taking it in the shorts. But, you know, sometimes that's what happens. And who cares? I mean, really, uh, it just means that I have to sell more stuff. So, Hopefully those will be arriving. Many of you will get them here in the next couple days, and then I'm going to get the rest of them out into the post office on Thursday. So hopefully they'll be there, who knows, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, something like that. Um, Altogether, you all raised $5,992.41 for Ryan Hunter Ray's Racing for Cancer Charity they take those dollars and do a lot of amazing things, direct help to a number of hospitals, number of cancer research programs, and through Ryan's partnership with AutoNation, AutoNation matches the donation. So your, we'll just call it round number $6,000, becomes twelve. And seriously, just for a little thing over a couple of days, 
in and around the Indy 500 strictly through social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You know, six grand? That's amazing, folks. It truly is for something as simple as this. So just thank you. Thank you, thank you for being so awesome. And it feels so good to know that uh, your help and your support is just going towards something that means so much to many of us. All right. We're going to get going with your listener Q&A. Got the music bed rolling in right about now. And where are we going to go first? Uh, did I mention we got a lot of questions? So I'm going to have to compress a few. Ed Joris, Andrew Drabelbis. I'm sorry if I mangled your last name, Andrew. Uh, Ed's wanted to know, does IndyCar find drivers for on-track radio chatter? And has Colton Herter replaced Will Power as the best unfiltered in-car radio listen on the track? Says you have to get your hands on the unbleep recording of Herter after VK cut him off on Sunday. It goes for laps, and he takes a vicious swipe at Ari Leindyke at the end of the race. Yeah, Ed, I heard that. Um, let's just say that we know that race steward Ari Leyendijk is an active supporter and mentor to young Renus VK in questioning why there was no penalty given to VK. Young Mr. Herda did indeed call into question if there was a reason for that due to the friendly and familial relationship between uh, Papa Leyendike and young Jedi Mr. VK. Uh, I can't say whether that was warranted or not. I can say that it certainly, if it is something that IndyCar heard, will be something that leads to a stern talking to at minimum if not probably kind of sort of a fine because while the Dutch race steward and the Dutch race car driver rookie guy certainly are close. uh, Anytime you question a race stewards decisions decision based solely on either nationality or closeness or otherwise, you know, it's not going to really land all that well with the person who is in control. And in this case, it is Mr. Leindyke and the race director, their boss, Jay Fry, and so on. So, yeah, I will admit, though, and this is not supporting what Colton said, but this is acknowledging the door left open for such speculation naturally i would say having a dutch teenager rising up the road to indy and getting to indycar and having the best known most successful dutch indycar driver ever being there to be a voice a mentor or whatever that part would be it'd be bizarre if that didn't happen truly bizarre and it's i'd say rarity is a contributor here if we're talking about a well how's this we already have 
Felix Rosenqvist. We have Marcus Erickson, our two Swedes in IndyCar, who talk about trying to help, mentor, guide, whatever they can, uh, Linus Lindquist, and any of the other young Swedes trying to come up the road to Indy. There's a nationality thing here. Hey, there aren't many of us around. So I don't think it's abstract to see that Ari, seeing a young Dutch kid with talent, uh, wanting to help and do whatever he can to improve the kid's odds of succeeding. Totally normal. Where things get complicated, though, is Ari is in a position of power. Ari is in a position of being a judge. And we do not know a single thing as to whether Ari was recused, recused himself, or was asked to step aside if and when whatever debate took place between the contact that nearly sent Colton into the wall uh, because the other driver in question is one that Ari has this mentoring-ish type relationship with. And we don't know any of those things, but we do know that it raises suspicion that this relationship goes on with someone who is in power. Uh, I mean, it's just, again, not supporting what Colton said, Ed, but the fact that there is this entanglement between someone who is in power and plays the role of judge, uh, along with at least one other person in race control, we would have to hope that any time Renus is involved in anything, that Ari is automatically disqualified from any participation in anything. For all I know, he's already said such a thing. This has already been expressed to the world. I like to think I stay on top of things. I can't stay on top of everything, though. So if it has happened, it's my ignorance. But I would have to assume there would be a plan in place that said, hey, if this kid's number gets called, you are not part of the decision-making program. Nonetheless, it does open the door to someone like a Herta or anyone else saying, oh, wait a minute, the guy just pulled off a overly aggressive move that hit me and I nearly crashed as a result and there's no nothing? Okay. Uh, I don't like the look of this and it allows me to ask some questions that aren't fair but they are certainly there to be asked. So, yeah, we'll tell you this. Uh, and I think somewhere here, or maybe it's in the second uh, section of questions. Yeah, I think it's in the, uh, the part two about the Herta and VK little incident. Um, yeah, we'll get into that in part two here. Um, so there you go. Uh, let's see related. And this is just the driver frustration, not so much the penalty side. Uh, Andrew asks, do you think Ryan Hunter and Colton Herter are justified in their frustrations with Renus VK? Is he angering other members of the paddock as well? Or just the Andretti autosport duo? I have heard that, um, Alexander Rossi is not a particular fan of Renus's driving behavior on ovals. The fact that this would be three Andretti Autosport drivers taking issue. Um, I mean, it's something, it's something to consider. 
knowing that two of them are Indy 500 winners, one of them is an IndyCar champion, and the other one's, you know, two-time winner as a rookie and by far the most accomplished young, young driver in the field right now. Here's what I can share, and I know that I wrote about this a little bit, Andrew, so I don't want to belabor the point. I know that I wrote about Sage Karam being in this position of being dressed down by Ed Carpenter for being overly aggressive on ovals and such. I know that Renus, having spoken with Ryan Hunter Ray, having heard what Colton said, having some insight about Rossi's feelings, there is a definite feeling that he does not grasp the difference in how much everyone needs to take care of each other on ovals compared to road and street courses. And it's not like you can just knock each other around on road and street courses and who cares? Obviously not. You can never just be wantonly crazy behind the steering wheel. But there is an acknowledged difference when it comes to ovals, in particular the faster ovals. And it's... It is the equivalent of, let's make sure everyone gets home safely at the end of the day. It's that Hill Street Blues message, for those of you who are old enough to get that message, of the sergeant giving the instructions to his beat cops, telling everyone, let's make sure you all come home safe at the end of the day. Uh, There is that thing on ovals where it is really a requirement in order to maintain the level of safety that's needed. So no one has said Renus VK is a bad race car driver, that he's slow, that he lacks intelligence, that none of these things have been said about him. It's a matter of, hey, the level of aggression you are displaying while racing with some of us is too much. Now, the counter to that, the flip side is, well, the other ones just need to nut up and go back at them and go just as hard. Uh, Some of these guys know what it's like to have massive, massive oval crashes, all because someone stuck their nose in where it didn't belong who decided to pull off a low percentage pass and clipped the guy going around him or whatever else. And the when things go wrong, it looks like an airplane crash type thing. That's what the veterans, even the young veterans, keep in the back of their mind. We're talking about Colton. He's been doing ovals for a number of years now, but he's seen his old man. He grew up. Going to the track, he's seen all the biggest, baddest, scariest crashes. He's seen folks die. This is someone who I think most of us would agree, if we're talking Colton, this is a kid who's not afraid to chuck it down the inside of anybody, right? This isn't some weak, you know, uh, snowflake-type driver. Colton Herta is a certified badass going for your jugular at all times but there's a difference between being 
super aggressive within the limits of safety and making sure the person you're trying to pass is not thrown into big jeopardy of a crash and simply not giving a damn. And I think that's where, Andrew, the frustration being expressed by Ryan and Colton and Alexander with Renus, and those are the only three we know of, I think the frustration that they're demonstrating, speaking to, comes from a place of, we're not saying you aren't good, we're not saying you need to go slow, we're not saying you need to fall back behind us, none of that. Hey, this on the ovals, it's a brotherhood and sisterhood, so we can all go home safely. And guess what? We could, we can do the same thing you're doing to us. We can do it back to you. It's another thing that maybe got lost a little bit. Does anyone think Colton Herter, Ryan Honore, anyone else on track could not pull off these moves on Renus? Knock him around a little bit, hit him while going by and throw him into the wall. See, I mean, let's just be really honest here. Renus is mercurially talented. I've said it for more than a year now. So, again, kid's talent, not in question. Do we think he's better than Alexander Rossi, Colton Herter, Ryan Hunter Ray? I think that might be a little precious. So, again, let's just apply a little bit of context here. These guys can do the same thing to him, and he will be wadding up cars every single race. But they choose not to because they know the repercussions. And so I think this is where the whole messaging and multiple messages now, I think that's where this is coming from, Andrew. Look, dude, you're fast and you got balls and that's awesome. Play fair. Don't don't jab the knife in when you're trying to get by us because that's when we all lose and we lose big in these oval crashes. The cars get mangled and who knows what could happen to us physically. We could do the same to you, but we don't. So respect that and play within the accepted boundaries of safety. I think that's what this is. Go to Tim Williams. Says, with a bad start in race one in the scary herd of EK crash at Iowa round one, does IndyCar need to look at how the starts and restarts are handled? We've seen issues in the past with the leader brake checking and causing issues or gassing it early and daring them to wave it off. At first, when I, I read this, Tim, I wasn't inclined to agree. The more that I think about it, funny how that works, the more my brain functions the more i come to better thoughts there might be something here there might be something here in terms of expectations and i can't say what i think it would be to fix and improve this yet of course you can you can throw out penalties right if you don't do this or if you do too much of that or whatever boy we're going to come down hard on you yeah those things tend not to work right i mean you know 
no one thinks it's going to be them that gets caught. I'm not sure what the answer is, but maybe there's some form of across-the-board item. You know, is it everybody, is there a a second-stage pit limiter? says, all right, well, we're going to want all the cars to roll into the start zone at pick the mile per hour. Well, what's the easiest way to do that? Everybody's on a pit limiter. And when the green flag waves, you undo the pit speed limiter. Obviously, the leader is the one who sets the tone on when the field takes off. But the whole breaking and farting around and zooming and going and i mean that stuff's been going on since the very first motor race so that's there's nothing new here but there is just something we're talking ovals of of course but yeah just a little bit unsavory i haven't had a chance to him to go back and do the zapruder film forensic look at what why and when with the two items here in question but I can tell you there's been a lot of torn up cars and that's not something teams can really afford. So I wonder if the teams might be the ones imploring IndyCar to say, Hey, uh, it might've even been our own guy that made one of these happen or who knows what, but what can we look at to make this a little cleaner when we come back to ovals next year? Cause this sucks and we really can't afford it. Uh, our pal Peter Nutt from Hall and says, really enjoyed the races. And would you agree that if IndyCar had smooth starts, it just wouldn't be IndyCar. If things can go wrong, they usually do in our favorite series. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah, you know, I look, I admit almost every week I love chaos. I'm a huge proponent of chaos and anarchy and all those kinds of things. But man... Yeah, it's getting to be a little bit too expensive and dumb, right? I mean, there's just people getting taken out, their races ruined. Where you go, the official, <laughs> the official phrase of 2020 for hashtag me personally. Come on, man. Yeah. Will Power too got murdered for, I guess, what was perceived to be him, his cause of the crash. Uh, the pre-green crash in race one. If he did, I don't know. Again, I, I don't know if I saw him farting around to cause that, but I know that there's an expectation that he's always at fault. If he's on pole and there's any problems, it's him. It's him. It's him. So, yeah, I just like the races to start good, Peter, and then they go race and they go around and around, and it's cool and fun. And there's passing. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of that this past weekend. Uh, Let's go to Jerry Suddeth. Funny enough, got a question on passing. Who asks, what can be done to lessen the detrimental impact of the wake produced by the aero screen? Uh, Says it seemed the second place car could do nothing when it got to one and a half second or so of the leader. Um, Ed Joris not only helping us to lead off the show, but has another question here on this topic. Um, Jerry, I'm right there with you. This is one of the, this is one of the odder things to see 
it's not a word right um one of the odder things to witness which was saturday's race for example uh let's take scott dixon hey he's there thereabouts but he's you know yeah okay well look we've changed a few things around done some pit stop stuff and he's saved fuel so his final stop was shorter and he got out and hey all right he's gonna win the race cool all right let's go to sunday all right well he didn't qualify crazy well right what was he sixth fifth something like that whatever and all right well let's see how he does right he won the first race so kind of normal you might think to keep an eye on that guy to see how he goes in round two and nothing he had absolutely nothing for nobody and of course we could say some of it was set up right if they had nailed the setup he would have been probably going more forward than what he was but by and large the race was 2.3 to 2.9 second deficit to the leader for scott dixon that was it for pretty much the whole race and yeah there's nothing there couldn't get by anybody uh really not too many people could get by him and i just sat there and watched his gap to the leader and you know whatever he was fourth fifth sixth wherever he was on track at the time um you know when he was roughly we'll just say fifth the gap was fluctuating between 2.3 and 2.8 2.9 seconds period could not get in front of the guy in front of him could not go forward from there it was and you just look back and for the most part maybe with exception of the top two drivers uh at times but by and large nobody could get by nobody as i use bad english grammar or or it was not a whole lot of fun so with all that said jerry the the main things that come to mind it's this i know it's a might well maybe it is a non-answer it's you be the judge IndyCar with this COVID-19 year canceling all testing they have not had the time availability or willingness to go out and do some testing with the arrow screen on the subject of what's going to make for an exciting show now bit of a caveat Realize that IndyCars canceled testing for everybody. If they wanted to ask a Dryer and Reinbold or Dragon Speed or name, you know, name someone else or even who, well, probably the rest of the teams would get grumpy if you asked a Penske Ganassi or similar. But if they wanted to, I'm sure that they could get two, three, four cars out and running at Gateway at wherever to look at how they could improve things but they didn't and i do know this is just a fact yes roger penske's a billionaire but the budgets are crazy slashed with covid going on and revenue being just a distant memory so in a normal year jerry what i'm getting at 
I would expect IndyCar to have gone and done their homework and played around with a variety of aero packages, worked with Firestone to see what kind of tires they might be able to develop. What we had at Gateway in particular, (coughs) man, those things were awesome. They didn't degrade, really. New tire, old tire. The difference in the stopwatch was negligible. Well, that's one of the big contributors to passing, right? Hey, towards the end of the stint, pace is a bit exposed, get by somebody, mix things up a little bit. Or, hey, if your car is really good, maybe you're trying to push the one ahead of you, not trying to get by him, but just trying to rush them the whole time, make them work their tires crazy, crazy hard so they go off sooner and they're exposed sooner and you can get by ease with more ease. None of those things were apparently an option because the Firestones were so good. So I would put this down to, yeah, sucked but i think that's just something we're gonna have to take as part of the hit of this being a COVID 19 year and a belief that once things hopefully return to normal for next year they're going to be able to do a bit more tailoring with the aero screen and the aero and hopefully with firestone with tires to come up with something where passing is not a desperation move Uh, truly a oh my god i hope i can make it happen right that whole taking care of each other thing i just mentioned uh we had to push way too far into the taking care of each other edict uh for some folks to try and get by one another so uh yeah there we go uh ed i'm just gonna go with jerry's question on this topic for the sake of brevity uh, let's go to our pal John Wojnar, a.k.a. John Ranjow. Uh, says, Brother Marshall, two questions. In light of other sports taking a stand and even boycotting uh, their events against police brutality, was it the best idea to hold a first responder parade at a track 20 minutes outside of Ferguson, Missouri? says, I understand the parade was supposed to honor all first responders, but considering there were zero fire trucks, and two ambulances, from what I saw, compared to nearly 40 cop cars, it came off as kind of tone-deaf to what's going on in society. Um, huh. So, yet again, I gave this one a little bit of thought before answering it. And... You're also not the first person, John, by any means to raise this question. Uh, I've had a number of folks pose this question, both privately and uh, here uh, for the show. I hear you. I'd also say that I think this might be something I look at as a bit of an overly sensitive review view of the situation. Uh, whether it's 20 minutes outside of Ferguson or two hours outside, it's a motor race. Motor racing tends to be highly patriotic, 
highly respectful of police, military, and of late, we're talking Corona, Corolla virus, our first responders in terms of hospitals, nurses, medical staff, ambulances, EMTs. So the military and police side, that's kind of brick and mortar of what we do. Now, I think paying tribute to people is a great thing. Do I see the natural fit between military, police, and racing? No, but at the same time, we could honor the folks who donate the most food at the local food bank and have them parade around the track. And it would be just as awesome. It would have the same lack of direct connection. But if we're paying tribute to people, if I were to look at racing's demographic, I'd say most of the people in the grandstands would agree that police and military are awesome and absolutely deserve all the love that can be given to them. Now, on the topic of Ferguson and just social uprising in the country right now, this is a... This is a, a this is something where if anything I would say positive to come out of questions like this or scenarios like this John it's a fact that maybe some folks are thinking for the first time about how such displays might be received by everybody everybody meaning not just the folks sitting there in the grandstands but watching at home uh, and otherwise my wife and I had a conversation over the weekend about police and my name, Marshall, my father's name, Marshall, my grandfather's name, Marshall, all as a result of being a Marshall. Not sure. And it wasn't me, my dad or my grandpa, but uh, this is something in terms of naming was done within our family as a result of family member being old Southern law enforcement. And we're talking 1800s. So uh, I admittedly fear to think what that uh, old Pruitt, who was a marshal, uh, I, I don't know how much I want to know about uh, his actions and behaviors at a time when our country was giving the big thumbs up to slavery and so on and so forth. Nonetheless, I know that in the conversation my wife and I had mentioning that we had many police officers come to my dad's shop, became friends, family friends as well. Uh, police officers, massive thumbs up within our family, military as well. My father, uh, having been in the army, his brothers and such as well. 
Um, the Pruitt family, thousand thumbs up, military and police, growing up, 100%. My wife, growing up in the projects in Alabama, said, yeah, whenever we saw a police car come anywhere in our vicinity, which happened frequently, we either froze or ran. More often than not, ran home to be away because the fear of what might happen of a police officer just deciding to stop and pick one of us out for no re you know, for we're just kids outside playing. Uh, too many stories, bad stories of things that had gone on. So just sharing here, not trying to get too deep or whatever. I always do my best as a reminder. None of what I've said is political. It's societal. Uh, in our house right now, you have someone who grew up, well, shit, whose last name is in deference to policing, um, but who grew up in a house where nothing but thumbs up and support for military and police. And you have the other member of the household who, granted, she ended up joining the military, but nonetheless growing up, uh, police equaled run for your life. So her, her brothers, her sisters, her neighbors, you name it. So two radically just different experiences, John. So I think it might be that point that you're queuing off of. Queuing? Pivoting off of. Something, something off of. Could be something where folks looking in right now with what's going on in the country might say, What? Why do you have 40 police cars going around your racetrack? Sirens blaring and lights. Go, what? Why? I don't know if just standard demonization of police officers is really something I can get with right now. And I know it's a popular thing for some to uh, just look at the police and anything related to the police as negative and bad and so on, I don't. Uh, I absolutely have to believe that like most things and most people in life, the super overwhelming majority of police officers are good people, and the ones that are not doing good policing, that are raising problems and causing so many problems throughout the country, um, I don't believe that we cancel an appreciation for folks doing some really brutally hard jobs under some of the most intense scrutiny ever right now. I don't know if we do ourselves a collective service by diminishing them and not trying to engender warmth and support within the police forces that are truly trying to do good and positive things. So maybe some of that's a little Pollyanna-ish. I don't know. But yeah, I understand the optics might not fit perfectly with a lot of what's going on in society, as you mentioned here, John. I'd also say that 
you know, at the same time, if we can celebrate seemingly anything um, and attach it to motor racing somehow, well, uh, I'd say that this celebration of first responders, maybe it's not something we have to pick on too much. Uh, let's go to a topic that has a lot of questions. Our pal, Zach Veach. Oh, man. Ron Terpstra opens with, I like Zach Veach. He's a great friend of the podcast. I wish him a speedy recovery from the bus Michael Andretti threw him under. I don't think he will recover in time to start the 2021 IndyCar season with anyone, though. Thomas Gross says, did this weekend seal the fate of Zach Veach? I hope not, but he's not taking the big step forward that we all hoped. And he just took out several Andretti cars at once. I'm beginning to wonder if the Andretti team is stretched too thin at this point. And even if Zach has the funding, if they would encourage him to look at another place, I hope I'm wrong. Um, Joey the Priuses closes the Zach questions on Michael Andretti seemed especially mad at Zach after he piled into his other drivers in that race one crash. Have you heard anything about Zach's chances of staying at Andretti if he leaves? Who gets a seat? Hinch, Connor Daly, Kevin Magnuson, Scott Tucker. All right, time for a breaking exclusive scoop. Scott Tucker, fresh out of prison. He's uh, he's headed to Andretti. Um, wouldn't it be crazy to find out that he owned Gainbridge? Like, it just, it'd be the most Scott Tucker thing. Um, all right, guys. So, while I'm failing to remember the exact race, it, it feels like maybe it was entering Iowa, I don't know, uh, or coming out of something before the Indy 500, one of the events before the Indy 500, I know that I said or wrote or did both, um, making it very clear, yeah, the season has not really gotten off to the start that Zach wanted after that awesome fourth place at Texas. It was a couple of kind of sort of forgot you were here races, Mr. Invisible, events the next two or three and i just wrote hey can't do this right now our friend have to come up with something overstating the obvious but at a time we're negotiating whether gainbridge will come back do another contract and so on uh things only got worse uh so fourth to open the year amazing 14th at the next race, um, IMS Road Course. Then the doubleheader at Road America was 16th and 16th. Uh, Iowa, out right away, round one, 23rd, 20th in the next race. And granted, you could say a 15th at the Indy 500 is decent. It's well within the top half. Nobody remembers the guy that f- finishes 15th, though. And then you round that off with a 21st at Gateway, obviously part of that big crash, and then just a terrible day. 22nd place in the second race. Oh, boy. Um, since that great open to the season of 4th, he has not finished higher than 14th. Uh, and on what three four occasions we're only talking nine races on four out of those nine races he's been 20th or worse 
the tough part here is the team is already having a bad year. Colton Hurd has been the one saving grace, right? He's been putting up fourths and fifths like you wouldn't believe. Iowa was obviously the, the outlier, but you take Iowa off the board, he's never finished worth, worse than seventh. After that, <laughs> you got Ryan Hunter Ray in 11th, right? We know the Cartoon Anvil has found him plenty this year, uh, but this past weekend, just there wasn't much there. I mean, he finished 7th and 11th, good, but no threat to anyone up front. And after that, I mean, Rossi's in 18th. We know the year he's had, right? He's actually, what, the only, I believe, Andretti driver who has visited the podium across five full-timers, nine races. So that's, four, what, 45 chances? Is my math right? I don't know. Just go with me if it isn't. Um, a single podium out of 45 chances. That's, yeah, so that speaks to the kind of year that they've had. Um, but even so, I mean, Marco is below Zach in the championship standings, but at least we have that Indy 500 pole to remember. That's going to stand out as a positive on the year. I know that that fourth at Texas was good for Zach, but it was a long time ago and nobody remembers it. So I just share all these things because before I think we even really got to Iowa, Zach needed to show something to Andretti. Here's a quick-ish close to the Zach theme. I have yet to reach out and ask. I don't even know if he'd tell me, but hey, you know how are things going? for trying to button something up for next year. Um, I hope that the answer is positive, and even though this year and last year, for that matter, weren't great by any stretch, I uh, would hope that his sponsor, Gainbridge, would just decide to stay with him and keep going. I'm hoping that they find other value in being in the series beyond where Zach finish, finishes each week. That would be the big hope. Would say that we need to think about Andretti's overall finances, right? So the the point that Thomas raises of, hey, even if they come back, uh, could Michael maybe encourage him to go somewhere else? That might be a bit of a question mark there, Thomas. We know that Rossi is signed to a multi-year deal as of last year. A lot of sponsored, sponsors that have jumped in. Um, you know, keep hearing there's more than one driver though that is not necessarily secure after this season, not only contract to drive, but also sponsor wise as well. Uh right. We know that that team, without a doubt, could probably use more sponsorship. If you have a healthy sponsor in Gainbridge contributing whatever their number is four or five six million a year whatever the number is that might be a hard thing to turn down even if it comes with Zach at least at this stage showing that he's he's lost and he's not really been able to find his way back 
Um, mentioned on the podcast many times before his young race engineer, Mark Bryant. I believe that kid's wickedly talented. This might have already happened. I don't know. I will need to ask, but part of me wonders their technical director, Eric Bretzman, the guy who won, what, three championships with Dixon at Ganassi, who's just, again, badass. No disrespect to Mark, but at this point in time, salvaging Zach's season with five races left to go, maybe if Eric isn't already doing this, maybe having Eric more centrally involved in Zach's engineering could be a positive to consider. And I wouldn't say so much because Mark would say be doing something bad or or wrong, but keep in mind that while Mark is learning maybe less about the technical side of the engineering job, but the driver, the getting what you need, extracting what you need from a driver to find the right setup. This is something that Eric's done for two decades and pretty darn good at it. Maybe this is an area where he might be able to help. Um, I'm wanting to believe that all the right information to make the car excellent is within Zach. And whatever it is that keeps coming up short, we know that the team as a whole is not in a position to win this year as it currently stands. But we have seen Colton wear out near podiums, 4th, 5th, 5th, 4th, 6th, 8th, 7th. I mean, he's been there, thereabouts. It tells you that that's possible within the team. Ryan hunter Rays had a bit of a harder year, but even so, got an 8th and a 4th and a 7th and a 10th and a, right? I mean, there's... Rossi's had that third, he got a sixth and an eighth, and da, 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 da. it's there. If there's a possibility of throwing more engineering skills at that program to get the most out of it, and there's a belief that there's something salvageable to keep Zach for X amount of additional years and Gainbridge come back and so on then that might be something to do if they haven't already. Uh, if Zach is able to come back with a sponsor and Michael, for whatever reason, says no thanks, I'm fairly confident that other teams, there are other teams that will absolutely look to run him. Um, just being blunt, a budgeted driver is a unicorn almost nobody is willing to ignore. Final point here is a young Canadian of Italian descent by the name of Devlin DeFrancesco driving for Andretti and also young Mr. Steinbrenner in the Road to Indy, the Indy Pro 2000 series. Indy Lights season has been canceled this year, as we know. Uh, Devlin, who's done multiple years racing in European open wheel, kind of the Formula One ladder, also done sports cars over here in IMSA. Well, he's currently leading the Indy Pro 2000 championship. He's been on pole twice now, I think. Uh, Almost won earlier in this year. 
uh, Road America. Been a front runner. Last weekend at Gateway, led from pole, stomped the field, won the race, and this is on an oval, the thing that is most foreign to young Devlin. So he comes with some pretty good commercial support behind him. If we're talking budget, I would say that Devlin, that won't be an area that Devlin needs to worry about. We're talking about getting to IndyCar. I interviewed him, whatever, a month ago or so, and he said outright, that's where I want to go, IndyCar, period. Uh, Leading the championship right now for Michael Andretti's team with George Steinbrenner involved, driving for Michael Andretti, currently starring on the road to Indy at what we have for this year at least being the top level. Um, If he can keep doing some really good things there, I'm sure – Doing a season of Indy Lights next year would be a huge recommendation, right? There's nothing negative about spending a year going around more ovals and a faster car and all that stuff. But if, by chance, he wins the title this year and there's a decision that, well, let's go do a ton of Indy Lights testing during the offseason just to get you miles upon miles of just extra and then we're going to roll you into a rookie IndyCar season next year. That's the kid I'm looking at right now. If they were to do all those things, which I think might be a little bit of a stretch, but wouldn't be totally out of left field. If Zach has Gainbridge back, but is someone that the team says, look, I don't know if we want to expand to six full-time cars. Uh, we're probably just going to drop Devlin into the car you're in. That's something in terms of abstract thought has uh, shot across my brain. All right, we're going to get to the last couple of questions for this episode, knowing that we certainly have more for another episode that I am going to do no matter what. I promise, I promise, I promise. Uh, Where are we going to go next? We're going to go to Mark Hamilton, Daniel Summers, Gill, and John Richter, all asking about spam. Mark opens with spam looks better than I had imagined and hoped Do they have their own shock program. And is it run with formula one's input or season IndyCar guys? Um, I am aware of there being technical involvement from McLaren, but I was told this a couple months ago might've changed since then, but uh, the grand plans to have a bigger and fully immersed McLaren engineering involvement in the IndyCar effort uh, has really been sidelined by COVID. So not saying there is none, just that uh, whatever grand size they expected it to be hasn't really panned out. And the sound you're about to hear is me opening uh, some Crystal Geyser sparkling spring water with carbonation. Lack natural lime flavor. Ah, I love this stuff. I don't know why, but I do. I would say, Mark, you have super talented driver in Pato Award, highly talented race engineer in Will Anderson. Will now in his, what, third full season, I believe, race engineering, uh, moving up from uh, assistant engineer 
long-term member of the spam of the Schmidt uh, family of uh, the engineering timing stand tribe would say we've got a couple of really good things going on there where they are those two guys are just finding good stuff together you then have craig hampson overhead as name whichever star wars or star trek character that you think is really smart um he's not yoda uh, he's you know craig's a little spock a little spockish then you have craig in an overarching role who even in this crazy year just someone i think who's able to make sure things are pointed in the right direction on the engineering front so i know that they know how to do good things with dampers um i would be surprised to learn mark if this pace and performance is due to someone outside of the greater indianapolis area uh, running the car Z. Uh, daniel says do you think the quick clean pit stops spam are having this season is a result of their association with mclaren whose f1 team often have sub three second pit stops uh does the f1 team provide any training well it's an interesting question daniel i don't know the answer if there's been any f1 involvement but isn't it something like 22 people involved in an F1 pit stop compared to what seven in ours. So I don't really know what kind of training they could provide since there's no refueling and there's so many things that are radically different in terms of personnel allowed over the wall and just how things can be done in general. Uh, there's no air jacks on an F1 car, right? They use, manual jacks in an indie car it's air jacks uh just yeah um i i wouldn't be surprised if someone asked the f1 team to look at how the indie car team does their pit stops and offer any efficiencies i mean that would be a normal or natural thing but uh, this is this would be the equivalent of, hey, McLaren has a NASCAR team and they do really good pit stops. Do they advise the IndyCar team? Like it's just, uh, forget the type of car being used. It's just a radically different form of racing. Totally different rules. Uh, just yeah. So again, would I, if I was in a position there to do such a thing, would I say, hey, and we send you over some tapes and you guys watch and just. Tell us if you pick up anything or like, hey, maybe you put your hand here instead of there. Maybe you move the tire over a little, just little things that are going to speed up. Of course, that, uh, if you didn't, that'd be silly. But uh, yeah, how's this? In the same way that the IndyCar team has been very quick with their pit stops this year, it'd be weird to think of those seven people trying to advise the 22 or whatever it is doing the f1 pit stops how to do theirs right so just a little bit of a disconnect on that front daniel um let's go to john richter during the iowa race i asked you if spam may be on equal footing for dampers with penske um i doubt that this is the case but i wondered with mclaren's money and potential r&d involvement um maybe that is the case or just a case of pato being that skilled that he is now with penske's 
uh, on the ovals. Um, I got a little bit lost in the question here, John, so I apologize. Uh, how's this? If we're talking bestest across the season, we might point to Ganassi and their damping program uh, as being the best, seeing as how they've won five out of the nine races. Granted, now Penske has won three of the nine, so you could say that they're certainly doing well. But, um, yeah, just know this. It's not uncommon for a lot of teams to be very good at damping. Uh, this is probably one of the key areas Andretti is asking themselves about saying, what did we do wrong? Where did we get lost and, or what did everyone else find that we didn't? So I know that at Dale coin racing, for example, Craig Hampson's damping goals and wishes, which are often executed by the amazing Olivier Boisson. Uh, if not Olivier came up with all them on his own, but I know that there, they had a really tight budget. And so they weren't able to do all kinds of crazy things like other teams. And yet, more often than not, uh, their cars are pretty darn good when it comes to damping. So this is a brain power thing. And when you can take brain power and add money to it, well, you're going to be in a pretty darn good situation. So would look at who's come in some of the added resources and money that's been made available and say it's not a big surprise, John, that, yeah, uh, this Aero McLaren SP team has been highly, highly effective of late, but also not just of late, maybe. I mean, Pato first couple races were okay, but not great. But, you know, Road America, dang near won that one there. That's going to test your damping thoroughly. We've been all oval since then, but, you know, uh, they were pretty darn quick on the road course there as well in Wisconsin. So we're probably just staring at an overall upgrade, my man. Overall upgrade in everything. Uh, where are we going to go next? Dave first. TV's Dave first. All right. Uh, Ed Joris is back again, but we're going to start off with our pal Mike Jablo. Hi, MPS saw the day first as the new vice president of communications for IndyCar. Seems to be a bit of a revolving door position with Kurt Cavan and Mike Zizzo having the job the past couple of years and Zizzo in the role for a short time. Any insight on this? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Um, and before Kurt, it was Mike Kitchell. Before Mike Kitchell, it was, I believe, Amy Conrath. Before Amy, I'm forgetting who it was, John. Anyways, uh, yeah, it's been about a every two to three year thing. And some been, you know, held on a little bit longer. But yes, oddly, this is the one revolving door, as you mentioned, that is just that. Um, I've mentioned this part before. It is certainly not breaking news. But I'll just reiterate it because it fits into the theme of the question. So I think it was 2015, January or so, maybe 2016. I admittedly don't remember. 
get a call from Mark Miles talking about something. And in the middle of the conversation, he offers me the job of VP of communications. And I re- it blindsided me as a like, what? And I'd called him about something and he was calling back to answer, you know, might've been for a story or whatever. So my mind in terms of the conversation was, Hey, reach out to Mark about a thing, call back talking about that thing. Great. Cool. I don't know if I was typing away, getting his answers or whatever it was, but that was the phone call in the middle of the phone call. He offers me the job of VP of communications and I'm just like, "Eh?" and kind of said, uh, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. VP communications. And just threw a question back at him about maybe the story topic we were on because I didn't really want to acknowledge it because it was a little too out of left field, but I also was like, huh, does that really just happen? Um, and so he went on answering my question and then got to the end of it and said, Hey, uh, just, want to be clear you you realize i just offered you a job and i said yeah i I do thank you that's that's a huge honor i'd be open to consulting but uh, i don't think this is going to be a good fit is what it really was boiled down to um now all the things that one might need to do in terms of vice presidenting over communications, I could say that from my experience in the sport, I've done a lot of, right? I've obviously worked my way up as a all kinds of roles on racing teams. I've been a team manager, so I have management experience. But again, it's in a racing team, not office. Um I've been a writer and reporter. I've done publicity and PR. I haven't done that for the last three or four or five years, but I did that pretty heavily for a lot of folks you probably never know about because I didn't, you know, it's behind the scenes, but it helped pay the bills. Um, did a lot of PR, a lot of this, a lot of that, a lot of things. So you could put all that together and go, yeah, you probably got the bones of the qualifications to do this. Um I just looked at it, and this is not saying anything negative towards Mark. This is just a recognition within myself of deficiencies. Mark, I think, saw something in me, obviously, to then extend the offer of that job. Would have involved moving to Indianapolis. Sure, it would have paid incredibly well. Double, triple, quadruple, five-pull, is that it? Um, What I make today, so again, would have been a Super big bump in a lot of things. My wife, breadwinner in the house, works here in the Bay Area, though. I don't know. You know, that would have been a conversation for sure because for me to do this, she probably would have had to have left her job and try and find a new one in Indianapolis. So, you know, uh, that's maybe not something that I would put on my wife, who is highly educated, master's degree two bachelor's degree ultra professional you know i'm kind of the idiot guy in the relationship um you know she's the one with a real job so me asking her to not have a real job or change her real job to something different so i can go to indianapolis and be the vp communications all these things flash in my head in an instant where it was like well yeah that wouldn't be fair to her and would also again 
there's that part. But the other part was, and I'm just trying to give you some background here to maybe get us to the answer in a full 360-degree view. Um, Then there's the fact that, yeah, boy, there's a lot of people that have this job. And, uh, huh, when a lot of people have this VP of communications title uh, because the old person's out and the new person's in and the new person's out and then there's another new person and new, 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 new. This just tells me it's a volatile thing, really volatile. And so I, I came to understand a little bit later as to what the ask was and what the reason was. Um, there's a disconnect, a big disconnect between the communications department and senior management. And there was a definite effort to wall off communications from leadership. No, F you, we need to be in charge of this. We don't need the folks on high telling us how to do, like, this is our expertise. Let us do our job. So no, we're not really open to you coming in and telling us what to do or how to do it. Um, There was a desire to have someone who could lead the department, but also really be kind of half there, but also half part of the senior management, not team, but just with them. So be the conduit, be the link, be the instrument, the lever that gets pulled by senior management to do things through communications department that they wanted. Wasn't happening. That's what they wanted. And although that was never expressed to me in this call, I later found out that was indeed the thing that they were looking after. But I looked at this scenario and said, and I said to Mark, I got to be honest, I really appreciate this. Financially, this would be a massive unit. This would be amazing. I think I'd last a year to maybe two years at most. Um, Whatever it is, this isn't a job that has a lot of permanence to it. And for me to uproot my wife and I to ask her if she'd even be open to it to move halfway across the country. The only place I've ever known here, leaving it behind the place she's only known since George Herbert Walker Bush, following Reagan, Reagan's vice president. I always get their names mixed up. She's been here since he was president. Um, this be a big thing. I don't know if I'd be the right guy though. I really don't. Uh, and I don't know if I would last that long in the role either through just being miserable or not meeting expectations. So I don't see myself as the right fit, and therefore I genuinely appreciate the offer, but I'm going to have to decline. And within a relatively short amount of time, there was an announcement that Kirk Cavan, longstanding reporter at the Indianapolis Star, had been hired as the new VP of Communications. And I felt bad for Kurt. Because while I didn't know his life situation, I all the fears that I had for myself of me not being a great fit and it not lasting super long, I looked at Kurt and said, I have the same fears and concerns for you. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. Uh, just ill fit for the job. And so as a result, Jay Fry reached out to his old friend Mike Zizzo, former CART champ car head of communications, 
moved on, was with NASCAR forever, where he and Jay got to know one another. Then Mike moved over and for a long time was at Texas Motor Speedway as their head of communications. Well, Jay brought Mike on. And Kurt just, again, it was a bad fit. And so they moved Kurt into, they basically just put him in a role that was more befitting of his experience, content creation and such, and website. And uh, Ziz took over there. And we're getting back to the end of the story here, and we're going to come back to Dave first. But I just want to share this because there's questions about Dave, and I've gotten a lot of questions about Dave, and they're not of the warm and fuzzy type. So that's why I'm trying to give you a little bit of a deeper dive here on this wacky communications dynamic. Um, Roger Penske buys IndyCar, buys a Speedway. Ziz, he is working remotely from home in Texas. Got a family, got kids uh, in school, not really looking to uproot them. So Mike's telecommuting. I think Mike's flying up to Indy at whatever interval, certainly there for all the races, but he's not an in-the-office 24-7 guy. I've been told by multiple people that is a no-go for Roger Penske and the Penske Corporation. So uh, there was a decision made that, hey, uh, yeah, so we're going to get through this transition and so on, but... Um, if Mr. Zizzo does not want to indeed be a full-time employee in the home office here at uh, 16th and Georgetown, then we are going to need to look at some alternate options. And then we have COVID, then we have downsizing, and Mike is first on the block. So, don't know what he was getting paid, but if you're in that VP role, obviously that's a salary that if you cut it, it's going to help something. Um, but then just simply the not being on site all day, every day part was a bit of a non-starter. And so that is why Mike was let go. And as I said then, say it now, it's the stupidest thing they've done uh, in all the various job changes and downsizing. Just idiotic, but... Again, uh, it's not my company. It's their choice. There you go. Um, So that leads to a vacancy in the VP of communications role. With him from NASCAR, uh, that general world, Ziz had his uh, trusty number two, Kate Davis, come with him to IndyCar. Kate, I've got all the time for in the world. I think she's awesome. Uh, With Zizzo gone, Kate inherited the department. And... She's, I think, the director of communications might be her title. Uh, I was unaware that they were actively seeking to fill the VP of communications spot in the season. This is just a dumb assumption of my own, but I assumed with the financial losses they've been facing and all that stuff that they'd just wait to get through the year and then say, okay, or get to the end of the year, however you want to put it. But basically, we're about to say goodbye to this new season. Let's, or this current season, let's try and find someone to get ready for a new year and, and give that person ample time. Apparently, they want to get an even earlier start with Dave. So that's a smarter approach to things. Uh, didn't occur to me, but as I think about it now, I'm like, yeah, actually, that's really smart. 
let them come in, be a part of this, see how things work, and really hit the ground running once we get into the off season. Um, I have the same concerns for Davey that I had for myself and that I had for Kurt. Uh, Ed Joris, your question. Nothing against Dave first, but I've seen this move before. Have you seen anything done by the Pensy organization that tells you that anyone there has new, innovative, or different ideas about what to do with IndyCar going forward? Uh, it seems like everything I've seen has been stuff that, quote, the family would have uh, would have done if they'd had more money. Uh, kind of disappointed so far. This, to my knowledge, is the biggest hire, I think, that Penske Entertainment has done since taking over uh, everything. Obviously, they have established the race for equality and change. I know that they want to or intend to. Maybe they already have hired Coach Reed, um, someone who just, again, super crazy respected uh, to be a leader, either the leader or a leader in that program. That isn't something that at least in terms of upfront someone interacting with the public on a regular basis would maybe be the high in terms of profile wouldn't be the same as hiring a new VP of communications. Um, Dave first, let me tell you the things that I know about Dave. I don't pretend to know Dave super well Had dinner with him a couple times, see him all the time at the track, talk with him whenever get a chance. Um, delightful human being love the guy pros pro. Um, my concern more than anything here for Dave, but also for IndyCar, it's actually tied to Kurt. So I heard this from drivers who I'm not going to name names, but I know did not and do not have positive relationships with Kurt uh, from his time as a reporter. I heard from a number of drivers, championship winning drivers, Indy 500 winning drivers, that they were livid at IndyCar hiring Kurt because they took the guy who'd been covering IndyCar for the Indy Star for 20 years or whatever it is, the guy who on a daily basis is connecting to a large audience that knows him, trusts him, believes in him, so on. This is our guy, Kurt Cavan. Every day you open the Indy Star, the heart of Indy car racing where the majority of the teams are based. This is the guy with the big relationship that he's built over 20 years or whatever. You've just taken this guy out of circulation. What? The F. The value that Kurt represents to our fan base, the home fans, but it that's a big fan base, the value he represents by being seen and read, whether it's in print or on the web each day, has to vastly outweigh whatever benefit he might bring by being inside 
the series as its VP of communications. I can't disagree. So that's not downplaying Kurt's capabilities and could he have risen to be an effective manager and visionary again, whatever. Just saying this is someone who had big known demonstrated value to IndyCar's fan base because of his role in the media and connecting with locals. And again, I'm talking some drivers who really, truly had and continue to have significant beef with the guy. And those are the ones whose comments stood out to me the most saying, I can't stand him. He did this to me. He did that. He did whatever. But I'll tell you, the loss to IndyCar's fan base because of this is I can't believe they took him out of play. I had the same reaction when I started hearing about Davey getting pulled into this role. And he's that guy with video. He's not a writer. Uh, he's not a journalist. He is the guy who seemingly every day, every night, whatever, has got some sort of IndyCar video, and I realize that he does local sports as well. But Dave's standing in front of a camera doing things to resonate with local IndyCar fans, but also that can reach both ends of the country, if not the world, through uh, YouTube and whatever social media. That's my fear here, that, wow, Dave First, he's a really good guy. He does a really good job. He's got a big heart. He knows a proper story when he sees it, develops it, does a great job. So many things. Uh, when Kirk got hired, Star put Jim Aiello in position. And I think Jim did a phenomenal job. Really do. At the same time, learning on the job, uh, having to build a new relationship that his predecessor had for, again, decades uh yeah that you know despite the quality of jim's work definitely had to be a disconnect there right i mean it's a relationship that's been severed i think about the same thing with davy only difference is i don't know who they put on camera to replace dave with that kind of relationship with indiana in the midwest and indycar fans I, yeah, it's kind of the Davy first show in that regard. So I hope IndyCar benefits from this. I will be lying if I said I knew exactly what the Penske group saw in Dave that made them say oh, he is clearly our new VP of communications in terms of things he's going to bring to this that will outweigh the loss of having him bringing digital video content and over-the-air content to Indiana and the world on a daily basis. I hope to hear big things. I am rooting for him like you wouldn't believe because I love the guy, truly. Like, <laughs> anybody who doesn't like Dave first, uh, 
I don't know who they are, but they're not from this planet. So he's that good of a guy. Uh, I just don't like the idea of Dave not being in that role that is so valuable to IndyCar fans. I'm going to close with two questions here. Ross Porter. I don't know why I just said your last name. A little weird, Ross. I'm not drinking beer or anything. I'm drinking sparkling spring water. So, yeah, sorry. It's an unpolished turd, y'all. I've told you this. Um, Marshall, seems like I noticed articles on racer.com reporting NASCAR teams failing post-race tech and associated penalties issued at a much higher rate than IndyCar. Any reason to the seemingly perfect tech inspection record by IndyCar teams? Uh, or is it underreported? Or penalties dished out in a hushed manner? Also, what is the best instance of bending the rules or fooling tech inspectors you ever saw um well we got a pretty significant difference here ross in indycar we have spec machines the delara manufactured cars have these days since 2018 spec bodywork as well so there's really just about nothing that should fail inspection if it's all assembled correctly and put together within the rules. NASCAR is very different. We have multiple manufacturers involved with different body types draped over the chassis, and teams do their best to massage those bodies to get through. And granted, NASCAR has ramped, way ramped up their inspection process and scanning process to spot any of those uh, issues. But that is a common theme that we see with something failing. Uh, there's not been a ton of suspension stuff that I can recall of late in NASCAR, but there's a lot of this thing wasn't bolted down, this hinge was at the wrong angle, just... There's so many things in NASCAR. I would say a higher level of things in NASCAR, Ross, that can be wrong than in IndyCar. Um, It's one of the, I guess, better things of a spec-ish series like this and where there's so many things on, say, just your standard NASCAR car that are made by the teams, handmade, that there's variability. There's just a greater rate of variability that might lead to some issues there. Would also say that the policies as well, you know, IndyCar is I, and I'm maybe not so much talking post-race, more talking pre-race, but there shouldn't really be any changes after the race as well if you get it right beforehand. To my knowledge, IndyCar's tech inspection group doesn't look at its competitors as adversaries right they don't look at them like we are judge and executioner and if you roll in wrong well you got whatever it is one try to get it right or two whatever in my experience going through and it's been 20 years right so that's going back a ways but just in watching seeing things roll through, standing um, in whatever tech uh, garage in recent years, 
just while things are going on. You know, this is a bit of a collaborative approach that I have seen. We're talking about getting ready to go out for qualifying, pre-race, tech inspection and such. The, the mindset is let's get your car right so we don't have to penalize you afterwards. It's also pretty rare just from a professionalism standpoint, Ross, where you tend not to get cars that come through with nine different things that are wrong. You know, most <laughs> cars show up, sure, there might be one or two things, maybe three things that are, you know, boy, you're a hair low on this part. Or, again, just couple, there might be some little things that need a tiny nudge of adjustment. But as I have seen things play out in person when I was on IndyCar Cruise and also of within the last couple of years observing up close, there's just a spirit of, we're here to help you get this right, not hang you if you get it wrong. So let's make sure your car is right going out so that when it comes back and goes through post-race tech, there should be no issues. And more often than not, that's absolutely the case. Um, you want to talk about instances of things going awry or fooling and such. I mean, there's some great stories about cheating and whatnot. The one that I'll come back to that uh, gets mentioned every now and then, we have our dear friend, the departed Justin Wilson. I believe it was... Texas 2012, 2013, where Justin won. While we're talking here, I am uh, going to do a little bit of search on the Wikipedias. Um, we had an instance where there were parts left on Justin's Dale Coin racing car that were not allowed to be there. They were maintained from the previous race. And I apologize, I should remember all these things, but I don't. Uh, okay, I'm scrolling as quickly as I can. Where did he, where did the big, Texas 2012. Yeah, so there were some aero bits in the first year of the brand new chassis. There's some aero bits that were used at the previous race at Detroit. Uh, back when it, its last race is a single header compared to a double header. Uh, there were a couple of pieces left on the car around the rear wheel pods. And those were slight downforce make uh, downforce adders that would have been used on a street course and were banned for use at Texas. This is when IndyCar wanted to go to a really low downforce thing at Texas. And the coin team... I guess missed the memo, forgot to take them off the car, whatever it was. Um, they stayed on the car, were on the car, and went out for first practice, second practice, qualifying, warm-up, whatever. Every session there was at Texas, Justin's car had them on and had them on in the race, and Justin won. And uh, in post-race tech... They found them, and they were unhappy. I know that Graham Rahal finished second that day, and he had said, well, yeah, you know, if I had had some extra downforce, I probably could have won too, and so on and so forth. So there was grumpiness. There was, I believe, a monetary fine and also a point loss as well 
for the car running in a legal specification? Uh, did those pieces allow make the difference between Justin winning and losing? I don't know. Um, I don't know. But I do know that they were absolutely outlined in the Texas Aero spec as no. And they stayed on the car from the previous race, road street course race, went through three, four, five, whatever number of times the car went through tech inspection before the race, never spotted, went through, won the race, went through, and what are those? And fines and, like I said, all that kind of stuff. And uh, my pal Bo Barfield was the race director at the time, and I don't remember his exact title, but he was kind of overseeing the technical-ish side, uh, you know, handing out fines and that kind of stuff. And he shot me a note shortly after and said, hey, uh, the coin guys are saying these things have been on the car the whole time. Um, you know, they're trying to plead their case a little bit ignorance, like, Hey, we messed up. Not that that changes things, but we just need you to understand if you're thinking about how you're going to come down on us here, this wasn't something we snuck in before the race and hope nobody saw and Ooh, we, we got it through. Ha ha ha. Pulled a fast one on you. We legitimately made a mistake and they were on the car the whole time. And so Bo just shot me a note and said, hey, any chance you got photos of the big man's car from first practice? And I said, yeah, and sent him a photo. And by chance, I'd happen to take a photo standing next to the car, holding my camera high over my head, shooting down. Uh, Engine cover was off. You could clearly see the pieces on the car. And this is before it had turned a lap at Texas. And I just remember Bo just responding like, damn it. You know, uh, it made him frustrated because he knew that his guys had seen this car go through tech over and over and over again, Ross, and didn't catch it. And that while the, it was a mistake and you didn't catch it tech people. So therefore you can't penalize us thing. Like it's not a thing, you know, it's just not a thing, but it did at least help. I think in the ultimate determination of how much to find and how many points to take or whatever that like, okay, this was a genuine mistake on both sides. You're still legal and we're, you know, we're not going to take the win away from you. You're going to pay something, but we do at least see here clearly that, yeah, this was a mistake, not an evil underhanded thing you tried to pull. So, uh, so there's that final question. JJ Gertler, our minister of mirth, Marshall, since Renus VK does not seem to be able to get out three syllables in an interview without his mask falling off his face, does it constitute a movable aerodynamic device? And how would the penalty differ among Bo Barfield, Brian Barnhart, and Chris Neifel? Oh, that's a great question, JJ. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So, for those of you who saw the videos that I did with Robin uh, at Indy, uh, and complained about the masks again. I continue to pray for you. Um, I wear a mask a lot. Uh, we go to multiple appointments per week, whether it's chemo, physical therapy, other chemos, other therapies, 
we are out and about in the world a lot. And so I have a out in the world super mask. Don't quite look like Bane, but I mean, it's just a normal mask. I'm not saying it's something crazy special, but I just saw its design and said, oh, that's going to stay on my face. And it's going to really, truly do a great job of filtering air. So that thing that I'm going to wear outside, not so much the inside, more of a controlled environment, but the outside in the world and in and around a lot of people at a lot of different places. And Lord knows what kind of protection and health and cleanliness practices they submit themselves to. I'm going to get a mask that I know is going to sit tightly on my face, seal very, very well. And I will, I don't have to adjust it. I don't have to think about it because it's there locked in place. Um, it's really strange to me, JJ, to see not just Renus, but I swear just about every driver being interviewed seemed to have the same exact thing. I watched what the Formula One race late last night from Belgium, and they're interviewing Lewis Hamilton who won the race, and he's talking in every five words he has to pull up his mask, and they're talking to this one over here. It like it just makes me wonder, and I don't want to be too serious here because you are our minister of mirth, but like if you're gonna wear a mask, put in some damn effort so it actually is a mask. If it's just a cosmetic thing, which I think ninety percent of what I see happens to be just a, oh well, they say I got to wear a mask. So, well, this qualifies. It does nothing, but it's it's a thing that's over my face. Just. Do something silly, like make sure that it actually fits on your face. Because, yeah, to JJ's point, um, it gets really old when you go, okay, and he's going to readjust his mask in three, two, one. Okay, he's going to readjust his mask in three, two. You can do better, IndyCar drivers. I'm telling you. Um, Yeah. I don't know why I've just decided to go this direction, but I did. So penalties. Okay. So Bo Barfield, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, and I think Chris Neifel might have the same penalty, uh, cause they're super close buddies, but I think the penalty to make sure it doesn't fall down the Bo Barfield slash Chris Neifel penalty would require Renus to smoke a large cigar the whole time. And so maybe, by clenching a cigar in his mouth through the mask, it would kind of, because of the bite force, would hold the mask kind of sort of in place. Does that make any sense? Maybe it doesn't. But I could see Bo and Chris forcing the kid to smoke a big cigar while talking with a mask on his face. No hole cut in the mask. Just right, jam it right in there in the hope that it stays in place, but also probably turns his stomach upside down so that he'd think about getting a better mask where he didn't need to have that happen. What would Brian Barnhart force him to do? I can't think of anything to say that would be nice. And I love Brian Barnhart. So I'm just going to leave that one altogether, JJ. 
yeah. I think cigars. Cigars for VK. Um, something we got to do. Now, I said we're going to be done. We are going to be done. There's a handful of questions. There's a lot of questions that I didn't get to um, that span a lot of different things. As I often mention, and I realize you're going to have to listen to the part two to realize if your questions weren't answered, send them back in. It can take two, three, four times, I think, is the highest number. If you really want your question answered and we don't get to them, and by we I mean me, I don't know why I say we. I just, I don't, and I never, I always tell myself not to and I do but we don't listen apparently um send them in again and i i would love like vincent uh you sent in one marshall can you explain engine mapping and how it relates to engine performance it's a great question coming off of a, a race weekend where we have a lot of timely things specific to the race to discuss um and the fact that you know we're already what hour 45 ish in a show is hoping to not go much more than an hour and a half. Some of these things just going to not get to this week. But again, if you want me to get to them, send them back in. Uh, even if you say, Hey, maybe I don't need this one now, but I'll make a note to send it in a month from now or at the end of the season, um, send them back a uh, Josh Ridgen. You got one here about, uh, being relatively new to American open, uh, oval racing and such. Want to know about the differences in tracks again, happy to explain that stuff it's just going to turn this into a two-hour show if not longer and we got another one to do this week so again if i didn't get to it and you really wanted answered i'd love to answer it just probably gonna have to wait for a future episode with all that said huge thanks to tim falkowitz for putting this together he puts our questions together each week it's such an amazing help uh you know cooper tires huge thank you to them would really 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 love to say how much the justice brothers mean to me and i do i do it all the time because it's real uh huge players in my life huge supporters of what we do torontomotorsports.com they are directly involved in the five thousand nine hundred ninety two dollars and 41 cents we raised and also and finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA. I am Marshall Pruitt. We're going to talk to you here with a guest who I don't know who that's going to be. And also a part two here very shortly. Week in IndyCar. <laughs>